I'm reading from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. This is where Jesus had just called the disciples, and in this chapter, they were all named. And then it says in verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Amen. So this morning we are looking at uh, a saint who tried to take this passage very, very literally seriously, um, which I assume none of us have tried. If it, um, we're looking at the life of St. Francis as part of our summer series. We're going through men and women through the history of Christian faith and reflecting on their lives. And this morning we're looking at St. Francis. And I must admit that I have not read the entire thousand years of scholarship on St. Francis. Um, what I'm hoping to do this morning is highlight a few kind of significant moments that we know about from his life, and then look a little bit about this, uh, this Franciscan order that he started in the Catholic Church, as well as some of the implications for, I think, the way his life challenges us to reflect on our own. So Francis uh, was born in Assisi, Francis of Assisi, uh, a while ago in Italy, around... Um, uh, 1,000, see, I told you I didn't read everything. A while ago, Middle Ages, he's born, he's the son of a wealthy cloth merchant. He has everything he wants in the world. He frivolously spends money on a lot of clothes and just enjoying himself. And this is kind of his life. There is, at this time, Italy is a lot of kind of neighboring city factions with different governments going on, and so they frequently go to war against each other, and it's this thing that young men do. And so Francis goes off to join one of these fights against one of the other parts of Italy, and he comes back slightly changed, He's sick, and he spends a lot of time bed, uh, bedridden. And this is one of a few key moments where he starts to really change the trajectory of his life and start to focus more on his faith. Uh, he decided to become, as one author writes, a knight who is errant not, not bearing arms, but bearing the cross and serving his ideal woman, Lady Poverty. And, and Francis had a lot of these little moments at the beginning of his life. One such one, uh, when he decided to renounce wealth, was when he got a vision from God that he was to rebuild this church that he was praying in that was literally falling apart. Um, and what he did was he, he sold all of his dad's money to try to rebuild the church. Now, I do not recommend that you go and try to sell your dad's stuff, sell your own, which is not what he did at first. And his dad got very upset at him and tried to renounce him of all his possessions and kind of disown him from his own inheritance. And Francis gladly accepted and ran off with nothing but the clothes on his back. And I, rumor has it that he also took those off as well. So this is someone who is com completely committed to this call of radical simplicity. He went around not begging for money to rebuild the church, but begging for stones. And he would rebuild these churches as he went around the area he lived in. Another significant moment for him in this kind of conversion to a much more, I guess, radical way of, of interpreting the gospel was an interaction he had with a leper. 
He was going down the road, and in his previous life of quite affluence, he would have been disgusted by lepers, as was the kind of common practice in the time, to kind of revile them. And he didn't want to engage with this leper. But this time, he got down and he kissed the leper because he felt that the leper was, in some ways, representing the image of Christ to him. And as the stories go, some people tell this story that when he left to get back on his horse and travel on, he turned around and the leper was not there. And truly, Francis believed that he had visited by Christ in the form of a leper. And for the rest of his order's time, they would take special care of those who were sick and leprous. And in fact, Mother Teresa, who we learned about last week, saw uh, St. Francis of Assisi as kind of her spiritual mentor, despite there being a many, many, many hundreds of years gap between their lives. She took it upon herself to try to emulate the work that he did with lepers and the work that his monks did with lepers as well. Uh, and it was in a small church in Assisi uh, this is the actual church they believe this happened. They've added a bunch of fancy art to it, but that Francis heard the Bible passage that we've had read to us this morning being read out in the church, and he decided that that was what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to not take anything with him and go out into the world and preach that the kingdom of heaven is here, and so he decided to start an order. We've learned already this summer about St. Um, Benedict, who started this kind of monk order, and Francis decided to do the same thing and begin this order of discipleship. Something that made them quite unique was this renunciation of wealth, a life without any possessions. Um, monasteries would often have a kind of a, a caveat on people that they couldn't own personal possessions, um, but the monastery itself could own as much as it wanted. And so what you'd have is, is monks who were not kind of having everything, but they were living in these very, very affluent, wealthy buildings because people would gift things to the monastery, and it would just accrue riches and accrue riches and accrue riches, even though everyone who was there was you know, committed to not owning anything themselves. And so for Francis, their order said, we're not owning anything. We can't have personal stuff, and the monasteries that we're part of can't do that either. We are just going to beg for the essentials we need for life. And so they went to the Vatican, and they tried to get the Pope's authority to do this. And the Pope originally dismissed Francis based on the way he was dressed as someone who should go live in a pigsty, but later that night had a dream where Francis was holding up the church and believed that, okay, I've got to, at least in word, give them approval to go and live this life of radical simplicity following after this call of Jesus. And so they were given um, verbal permission to do it, and by the end of Francis' life, they'd been given written permission by, by the church to be able to continue in this way. Other notable moments from his life would be when he traveled um, to the Middle East, to the Holy Land, to try to convert a sultan. So this is in the time of the Crusades, and people are fighting over possession of the Holy Land, and Francis does something novel during this time. He tries to go and talk to the sultan and convert him. And we have to realize that this is quite a radical approach to how... Uh, conversions were happening in the Middle Ages. I didn't want to include a slide, but you can Google when you get home, uh, crusade torture, and you can see some weird stuff. They're not even photos, because we didn't have cameras. They're drawings of what uh, it would look like for Christians to try to go in and override the Muslims and how they would work at converting them slowly with little bits of more incremental pain. Francis did not do this. What he did was he sought an audience with the Sultan. Um, and this has been kind of exemplified as a model many, many years ago when this wasn't happening in the world of interreligious dialogue done well. And it said that they were able to have a bit of a relationship. And, and while he did not maybe succeed in converting him, there was certainly a rapport built that was not there during the Crusades in any way. 
uh, one story also tells that Francis was uh, willing to challenge the sultan's priests to trial by fire in order to prove the veracity of the Christian gospel. So um, Brandon spoke about Polycarp at the beginning of the summer, and something that's attributed to him is that they tried to burn him in the Colosseum, and the fire just wouldn't light. And so one of the stories says that Francis was willing to wager a bet with these priests of another religion, saying, well, why don't we both set ourselves on fire, and whoever doesn't burn is clearly right. I don't necessarily recommend that as an evangelism strategy, but let me know how it goes. Uh, A few other notable things from St. Francis is that the the nativity at Christmas, that having a live nativity that reflected real animals was something that we can attribute back to him as well. He was a deep, passionate lover of communion and its importance. And near the end of his life, it said that on top of a mountain, he received physically the wounds of Christ, that um, coming down from this mountain after intense time alone, fasting and praying, he physically had wounds in his body known as stigmata, and would be one of the first people to exemplify this. So there's a lot surrounding this person of St. Francis. Um, And he started this order of Franciscans, originally just getting um, verbal approval from the Pope, but eventually getting a lot more um, kind of written approval. And there's a few things that I want to just highlight uh, about the Franciscan order that Francis originally proposed. And the first one I think is is important is that um, they were radically committed to poverty, But that did not mean that they were committed to not working. I think sometimes there's this, oh, are you just going to live kind of out doing nothing all day? And and that wasn't the case. They were equally committed to working. um, And part of his rule, St. Francis writes, let those brothers to whom the Lord has given the grace of working labor faithfully and devoutly so that in banishing idleness, the enemy of the soul, They do not extinguish the spirit of holy prayer and devotion, to which all temporal things must be subservient. They may, however, receive as the reward of their labor the things needful for the body for themselves and the things needed for their brothers, with the exception of coins or money, and that humbly, as befits the servants of God and the followers of most holy poverty. So they were working. They were pushing away idleness, the scourge of the spiritual life, but they weren't accepting money while they were doing it, which is kind of unique. In the first iteration of his order, another thing that um, Francis asked of people that I think is interesting for us to reflect on is that um, if you were to join his order, you couldn't ride a horse. You weren't allowed to ride a horse. I have never ridden a horse. I would be fine with that. But um, the point of this was that he deemed it a luxury that was unfit for these brothers minor that they were going through. In essence, it was a superfluous good for the Christian life. It was something that he deemed unnecessary to live a good Christian life. And I must admit that I have never really in my life thought, oh, that thing that I'm going to do is probably superfluous, and I don't need it. That's maybe a luxury beyond what is realistically worth doing. I don't think I've ever put that kind of caveat on my spending or my time, and I wonder if you have either. Uh, I've been challenged by... C.S. Lewis's quote, talking around this idea of, of what we give up and what we take, because I think it is a big topic that we maybe don't talk about sometimes enough in church that's certainly very present, and in, in, in Francis makes this quite apparent to us in the way he lived. And so C.S. Lewis, when talking about wealth and, and what goods we're allowed to have and what not, says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. 
There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot be do because our charitable expenditures excludes them. And I find that convicting. That I think that's an important way that each of us has to look at our own life and, and maybe have the same challenge that Francis had around what are these things that we just realistically need to give up um, as we follow this kind of way of Jesus. I mean, uh, if, you, if you give too much of your income away in Canada and when you do your taxes, they will flag you for an audit because it looks suspicious, right? Like you're giving away a lot. Are they just trying to get a better tax break? What's going on? Generally have to go into your paperwork. And imagine if that was what Christianity was known for in Canada. Imagine it was like, oh, check the box because you're Christian so we know we don't have to flag you because all of you give so much of your darn money away. It just puts a red bleep in our system. And then we have to put all this manpower towards what we do. Imagine, imagine that was just part and parcel of what we did, that each of us at whatever income bracket and whatever experience in life we have, we're giving generously out of that in a way that caused the Canadian government to get really frustrated. <laughs> this order that they started was a withdrawal from the world a very simple poverty and identification with the poor, working day in and day out with them. And I assume before I got up here this morning, you've heard the name St. Francis of Assisi. He is probably one of the more well-known saints and one of the more well-known Christian figures uh, of our time. In fact, uh, there is a Marvel comic book about St. Francis that came out when you could still buy comics for 75 cents. Um, so he's well known in the modern age, and you could probably go to a garden center today and find one of these, uh, St. Francis in a garden. And there's a lot of myth around St. Francis, and I think he's often tokenized as a few certain things. So as I've been preparing for this sermon, and people said, oh, who are you speaking on? I said, oh, St. Francis. Oh, that bird guy. The bird guy. Um, St. Francis is, is known for his connection with nature, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And he's kind of been this, this herald of this uh, spiritual but not religious movement a little bit, of like St. Francis is out there being spiritual, but he's not religious. And um, I think just that's a total myth. I think this spiritually lightness uh, that's attributed to him is, is just not the case for who he was. Uh, a spirituality that can often get turned into self-centeredness, right? We know that if we're just being spiritual and seeking, it can often just be about what are we getting out of this. It can often just turn into a lust for personal experience, like what am I, I going to have? And it's, it's often just middle-class therapy. And, and that's not what St. Francis was about. He uh, was a devout Catholic. And at this point, the Protestant Reformation hadn't happened yet, so we can still say, like, we're kind of in that line too. I mean, he was deeply committed to the faith tradition that he was a part of. In other writings, he says, let all the brothers be Catholics and live and speak in a Catholic manner. If anyone should err from the Catholic faith and live in word or in deed and will not amend, let him be altogether expelled from our fraternity. And let us hold all clerics and religious as our masters in those things which regard the salvation of souls. If they do not deviate from our religion, and let us reverence their office and order and administrations to the Lord. A lot of old language there, but a lot of commitment to being part of the church body and not leaving to kind of do his own thing. They were in order. That they wanted to have full kind of permission and, and kind of connection to the overarching body at the time. This was still a deeply religious and committed movement. And he is kind of the bird guy. Uh, one of the legends or many stories are around St. Francis being out in the woods and either taming a wolf by talking to it to appease villagers or preaching to the birds. And, and this is where he kind of gets this rep. And, uh, and recently I had a moment that I think put this maybe in some new perspective, at least for me. And in sharing this story with you, I fully will cement myself 
as the hippie dude in our church because of what I'm about to say. But uh, Rachel and I were watching a movie the other night on Netflix. It was my turn to choose. We can't agree, so we just rotate, which is maybe what you should do too if you're in the same situation as us. And it was my turn, and Tarzan was on Netflix. So we got our little Caesars, and we put on Netflix, and we started watching Tarzan, the new live-action one. And, uh, and I'm, this is so cheesy, but I just had this moment while watching uh, Tarzan, uh, looking at the way that his character is portrayed as just having such an intimate connection to the animals and knowing bird calls and being able to protect them. And I just, I started to like tear up a little bit and I'm trying to hide this from Rachel because it was so stupid. But I just thought to myself, I said, I said, this is, this is the call we missed. Like as a speed, like this was, like we were to be stewards and we were to protect the other creatures and we were to know them intimately as God knew them and God pronounced them good and we just didn't. I identify more with the villains in that movie than I do these, well, first because he's jacked, but also just because he's, he knows the animals. And it was just this moment of like, there's something highly spiritual about a reverence for nature. And that's another key part of Francis that I want us to take away that I think we can take away too, is that in his rejection of materialism and possessions, he didn't outright reject material reality. I think this is a trend that we can often see in spiritual traditions, that it's like, okay, let's just rid ourselves of everything, including like the earth and this bench, like none of it exists, let's be in this state removed from all possessions. And, and for Francis, and I think for Christians, there's a clear, clear distinction that there is pushing away from material possessions and ownership, but a deep reverence and love and heart to preach to birds and to be fully rooted in the world that God has created, which is, I think, a really key distinction that Francis highlights for us. The intensity of his devotion to Christ provoked this spirit of joy, simplicity and reverence for the earth. It comes flowing out of his discipleship, not as an aside. As one author writes, Francis realized all of creation speaks in its own way of God in general and the hidden presence of Christ in the world, through whom the world was created in particular. Uh, and I think that's one of our calls, right? We're to rejoice in the created world and rejoice in the things that are best. There's a quote that uh, I love. This is by Coco Chanel. And it says that the best things in life are free. The second best are very expensive. And we all know that's true. The best things are free. And as Christians and followers of God, I think we're called to pursue the best things, not the second best things that will just leave us on a treadmill trying to get more. Our ultimate pursuit should be for the best things. And I think we see this a little bit in our society with a trend of minimalism, right? This is something Francis, people could draw on Francis for and see religious tradition. It's even more minimal because the slide didn't show up. But this idea of having as few possessions as you can in the life you live and kind of moving away from just accumulating more things and, and finding contentment in moments and experiences and people and places and uh, the things around us. And this is something that I think people have been drawn to in Francis of recent as the environmental movement and minimalism and these sort of things catch on to realize there was a guy hundreds of years ago who was deeply coming at this from a very Catholic rooted traditional place. And this is our challenge, I think, right? To look at his life as we're doing this summer with all of our speakers. And that Francis, I think, challenges us more than anyone to notice that imitating Christ is a Christian possibility. It's something we can't ignore. He asks us to examine what a life of taking Christ seriously would look like and if it can be done. 
Uh, and this, I think, happens all the time. We often, you know, often by living differently, you kind of implicitly critique something else that things are going on. So uh, Rachel and my wife and I, we live in a house of community. And we, we don't own a car, um, but our housemate does. And so quite often, uh, we'll be like, oh, we want to go to the movies. Um, but it's a really far bike ride. I know, we'll borrow Eric's car. Yay, community. Hey, Eric, can we take your car so we don't have to bike all the way there? And he'll be like, yeah, sure, of course you can. Awesome roommate. And we'll go to the movies, and we'll come back to realize that in order to give us his car, Eric, for his evening activity, biked to wherever he was going. And it was generally farther than the place we borrowed the car to go to. <laughs> and I just get on like, oh, we're not as environmental as I want to pat myself on the back and be. And, and there's, there's this critique and, and proof that it was possible. We were clearly able to bike. Eric just proved that he could bike farther in whatever he was doing that night. And I think that's the real convicting part about St. Francis, is that we can look at some of these hard things that Jesus said, and we can be like, oh, yeah. But he really strove to do it, and he proved that in a human life, you can take a lot of it, and you can really go with it and go far. And why not try to follow those examples? Why not try to learn from the best? What Francis understood, this is a quote, what Francis understood was that the core meaning of Christianity did not come from following the New Testament as some kind of manual for spiritual perfection. The New Testament was a witness to the meaning of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus was not to follow a doctrine, but to imitate a person as that person is witnessed to in the word of God. Francis may be the only one amongst us who can say that they take the Bible literally. He wasn't really willing to compromise, and he took the things that Jesus said in his context and brought them into his own. No horses. Do we do the same? Taking the things he said, okay, what if I was to apply this in my modern age? How would I go about striving to follow this well? We can often run the risk of not wanting to apply these ancient teachings and feel like, well, yeah, I can never ride a horse. That's fine. And then we don't have to deal with them. And it, it draws out a big distinction that I think we'll talk about in discussion later, which is sometimes how we interpret theology. I mean, something that I want you all to think about is when you hear the word, the word of God, do you think of the Bible or do you think of Jesus? And Francis was doing this interesting thing that the Anabaptists would catch on to later, that the word of God was, in fact, Jesus. And we can discuss that later in our, our different takes on that. And I think more than I do, Francis actually believed that Jesus was God. I know that's not the thing you're supposed to say from the front of a church. But if I believe that Jesus lived, was a God, and lived as a model of what the best human life could be, if he lived perfection, if he did these things, if he truly was God, then his example is probably the best option that I have at a all the self-help options out there for living the best life a human can. The foolishness of Christ is that living like a God is not full of Coco Chanel second best things in life, but the words and actions and the poverty and the care and the service and the hard work of Christ. We can't often get focused on building up institutions and keeping this whole thing going rather than just following what Christ's life was. And I think this is this, there's a perfect metaphor in this little church. So earlier, we looked at this little church. This is the place where Francis is attributed to receive his call from this passage of Scripture we read to go out and start his order. And you can maybe notice that this little church is actually inside of another building. So what they've done in Assisi is they've built this thing all around it, a basilica around this little chapel. And isn't that what we do? 
we, we build this whole thing and this whole system, but nobody is nobody's going to Assisi to see this. They're going for that little chapel inside. No one's pilgrim going on a pilgrimage to Assisi for this. They want to see what's inside. And while all of this can be a lot of fun, what people are really going to be drawn to is Christ and this small, humble little place where we find him, where Christ is. And I often take parts of the Bible seriously, or I try to make our community take parts that I find convicting, but often not others. And I read a, I read a book by uh, Shane Claiborne in high school. It was a game changer for me as far as some of these thoughts. I should probably pick it up and read it again. But he has a really convicting slide um, that I think Francis would convict us in as well. And I can't remember if this is him saying this or, or, uh, or someone he's quoting in the book, so don't write him an angry letter. Um, but Shane Claiborne, when talking about this idea of picking and choosing parts of Scripture, says, you know, we, we do need to be born again, since Jesus said this to a guy named Nicodemus. But if you tell me I have to be born again to enter the kingdom of God, I can tell you that you have to sell everything you have and give it to the poor, because Jesus said that to one guy too. I guess that's why God invented highlighters. So we can highlight the parts we like and ignore the rest. Or Soren Kierkegaard, another um, punchy philosopher of the last hundred years. He says, the Bible is very easy to understand. We Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Francis acted accordingly, constantly giving of himself in devotion to God, whom he loved. We just sang a bunch of worship songs. One of them said, take my life a sacrifice. In you alone I'm satisfied. Here I empty myself to owe this world nothing and find everything in you. And I've been thinking for the last year that I need to rewrite some of these worship songs because I'm not ready to sing this. I want a worship song that talks about me giving 30% tops to God of everything I do. My time, my money, my care, uh, my relationships. I don't know if I'm ready to give everything. That is a bold statement. I think it'd be better if we started with songs that talk about 30%. Boldly. That's still a lot. We need to be aware, I think, of what highlighters we use and intentionally grapple with these parts of Jesus' call and his ministry and the things he said that we wish were not there. And I, I think this is hard, right? I mean, following this way of Christ, this discipleship after him, these footsteps of Jesus, is, it's like a muscle waiting to grow. We've, we've atrophied these muscles of simplicity and trust that God will be there and, and will pour out through our lives. They've not had a lot of use, at least not in my life. It's really hard work, as exercise is, but it's so much more healthy to not be an atrophy. And, and this self-emptying, this, this Francis taking communion so seriously, um, his emptying of his own life came from his deep-rooted belief and trust in the way that Jesus emptied his own life for us. And uh, one of my favorite verses is in Philippians 2, just speaking about this nature of Christ and, and what he's done for us, and I'd like to read it um, for us now. In Philippians 2, Paul's writing, and this is an interesting passage because we think it's maybe one of the first hymns that the early church wrote that we have. And they're talking about the nature of Christ and what he was like. And then verse 5, they say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born to the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The hope and Francis' life was not out of a sense of legalism, but it was a sense of each of us discerning how we respond to that call. What Jesus has done for us, his outpouring, how do we internalize that? How do we take that gift we've received and live it out in our own outpouring, in our own life? This is a huge challenge to think about starting to give up and really take some of these hard parts seriously the way Francis did. I am a child of a consumptive world, and I like buying new things a lot. Would it be perfect joy? Do we trust that God would care for us, or that even if he didn't, that this would be the way in giving that we receive, that Christ modeled the best way to go? Francis' extreme generosity and poverty flowed from the belief that Christ was extremely generous to the point of poverty. We have been given so much more than we could ever ask for by way of his salvation and the work that he's done on the cross. So how do we go about responding to this gift? Practically, how do we do it? After this singing is over and we step out of the building into the world, how can we work a muscle that is just begging to be used? And I think that's his call. And these guys are ready to go, and I think we are too. So thanks for listening. Um, we got some discussion questions, as we always do in the gym, and you can make your way there just through the doors, and we'll see you next week. Have a good one, guys.